a Podcast One production. Hi and welcome to A Plate to Call Home. My name's Gary Megan and this is a series where we get to know the people behind the food and discover the stories that have driven these passionate people along. Today I'm speaking with Kirsten Tibbles, who is arguably the most recognised pastry chef in Australia. She's represented Australia at the World Championships and she's the founder of Savour Chocolate and Patisserie School. She also incredibly has over half a million followers on her social media accounts. In fact, she's so popular that Instagram even asked her to show some of her mouth-watering videos and images at their headquarters in the US. She's also referred to as the Queen of Chocolate and as soon as you see the delicious things she makes you can see why hope you enjoy my chat with her so where did it all start where did pastry start for you i started at the age of 15 in an apprenticeship in the peninsula in australia in victoria yeah and when i started i was told it's really long hours you need to love what you do And I said, yep, that's me. Absolutely, it's what I want to do. But I think I had no comprehension of the hours and the physical, you know, requirements for a job like that, having not having done that before. So it went from zero to a thousand instantly. But he was an incredibly talented pastry chef. Who was was that pastry chef? Where uh, Where did you work? It was a place called Trader's Patisserie, which was actually a wholesale patisserie, but it did retail cakes. But in that period, which was probably the the 90s, um, they did beautiful top-end French-style cakes, if you like. Yeah. And in that days, we used to do laser sponge, buttercream, and then we'd do what we call masking. We'd mask them up, freeze them, then glaze them like they do today. Yeah. But we just didn't have rings and all those silica moulds. Um, but the skill he had was really quite phenomenal. Yeah. What do you remember about him? Um, what was he his was name? Shane. Shane Schrader. He was yeah. quite young. Um, very, very energetic, very, very passionate, and I think that was number one in his life. And so he gave it his absolute all. Um, and it was really just the two of us. Every Saturday we'd start at 2 a.m. each day, but every Saturday, even though we'd start at 2 a.m. to get the orders out, that's the thing with wholesale, you have Mm. to start early to get all the orders out, and then we would clean for like eight hours. What do you mean clean for eight hours? We were, <laughs> It was a factory. We used to scrub every single centimetre of that factory. All the racks in the fridge, the floors, the seals, everything, the trolleys, the racks in the trolleys, the trays, was scrubbed within an inch of its life. So Just, just the two of you? Just the two of us. It was, we so, cleaned during the week as well, yeah. but that was a massive, massive clean. And you were 15? Yeah. You see, my daughter's 16. And I just can't imagine her going to work like that at 15 years old. How, did you, what, did you, what were you thinking when you were scrubbing those pastry shelves? I didn't Dallas? mind. You didn't mind? I didn't mind, no. My dad didn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> what did your dad think? My parents were divorced, but he used to come down and knock on the door and say, you're killing my daughter, and Shane would say, go and lock the door. <laughs> And tell him through the door that if you want to keep your job, he needs to go home. So I'd yell at my poor dad through the door and say, Dad, he said, if I want to keep my job, you need to go. I'm okay. Wow. (laughs) And and where were you living at the time? Were you living with your mum? I was living with my dad. Yeah. And we lived probably about 50 minutes from work. 
So he would wake up at one o'clock, drive me to work for 2am start, and then he would drive home to get up then at 7am for his full-time job. My goodness, that's tough. And then who would bring you home? Well, my mum would, but they didn't have mobile phones in. It makes me sound really old. (laughs) (laughs) So she would have to wait by the phone for me to ring. And she worked full-time as well, but she was a school teacher, so she would be home any time from probably 5 o'clock. So I would ring after 5 p.m. of an afternoon. And then he used to say to me, ring your mum and tell her if she wants you to finish early, she should come in and help you with the dishes. So he'd get a little bit of extra uh, help. Is that what you mean? Or, yeah, or he'd say, ring your mum and tell her you're finished. And I think, there's no way I've finished this things full of dishes. <laughs> but then when she'd come in, he'd say, she's not quite finished. If you want to give her a hand, she'll get out earlier. Gee. So then my mum would come in and do some of the dishes so I could actually leave. Well, how many hours did you work a day, do you reckon? I think it would be between 15 to 20 hours a day. That is insane. How long did you do that for? Five years. My goodness, Kirsten. No wonder you're good at what you do. <laughs> yeah, it was like so- <laughs> an intensive uh, training, like 15 years in five. So what, was, so what was the thing that kept you going? I think once you're in that circle, and I guess it was the diversity of what I was doing, we did a lot of <clears throat> cakes and wedding cakes. We did laminated dough, so croissant and Danish. We did focaccias, breads, and it was a bit of everything. And for the majority of that time, it was actually just the two of us. So you got to experience every aspect of those applications, which I think is, there's not many places like that where you get to do a bit of everything at that sort of quality. And what did you get good at, first of all? What did you, you know, you know, as a young kid, what did you feel really proud of in terms of doing? Was it those croissant or the Danish or was it the wedding I didn't actually, because I think... When you are sleep deprived, I used to get very nauseous and quite often would vomit most mornings because your your body and you know what used to kick it off is the smell of fermenting yeast is right. when you'd come in and open the priva door and get that whoosh of fermenting yeast and sometimes with the focaccias, rosemary and rock salt mixed in, I used to think, mm, no, need to... Make a bolt to bathroom. So do you still feel that way about rosemary rock salt yeah, and yeast? I do. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> and olive see, most, oil. Yeah. Most people might have that that uh, that feeling about maybe getting drunk for the first time on something <laughs> terrible like Bacardi and chocolate yeah. milk. You know what I mean? Like a t- and not be able to face it. And you've got it strangely about things that you probably work with every single day of your life. Mate, that was a tough apprenticeship. So what did you do after that five years? Why did you leave? Um, I think the time had come for me to go and he was very good about it. So I actually went and worked at the Sheraton in Melbourne. So big change? Yeah, so massive difference in terms of lifestyle work balance and being the age then, because you've got to keep in mind then I was only 20. 20, yeah. So, you know. I've worked was, that out already. I've yeah. gone, right, she's 15 when she started, five years of start hard labour. the hours up. <laughs> and now 20 years old. So did you go crazy? Um, no, I, oh, look, I went to America and I came back with a black boyfriend, a black American, and my mum was a bit shocked with that, but I think that was my rebellion. Yeah. Yep. He had a body piercing. His name name was George. He had a body piercing shop in San Francisco. So he was pierced everywhere? He was pierced everywhere. He pierced my tongue. So yeah, a little bit of rebellion. (laughs) (laughs) How long did you go out with each other? Uh, probably about two years. And so your mum got used to it? Yeah, she accepted it. She, she liked him? Yeah. 
Okay. And go to America would have been a bit of an eye-opener. Was it just to travel or did was it just a holiday? I still actually a- travelled throughout my apprenticeship. Okay. Um, so it wasn't the first time that I'd travelled. Um, my sister lived in and worked in Canada for a okay. lot of years. So I went to America and then went to see her in Canada. Yeah. But Do, You know, when you go to a place like that when you're young, it often changes what you're thinking about doing, you know, it's an eye-opener. It's an amazing place. It's a big country. Did it not change things It is a big country. It didn't change anything in terms of my philosophy with food. Yeah. I think at that time I didn't really gain any insight into food or beautiful food or anything like that. But I think that was, one, my age, my budget at the time. So you talk about philosophy. What what was that? I mean, that's pretty young to have a philosophy about what you want to do and where you're taking your career. I sort of still have the same philosophy. I sort of take things one project at a time. I did enter competitions then. So I entered um, bake skills competition and I won the Baking Industry Scholarship Award for Australia. I entered Easter egg competitions. So I, even during my apprenticeship and even from a young age, I entered competitions, but I think I took one project at a time. And my focus was to and philosophy, if you like, was to always improve and go forward and never, ever go back. So okay. always go forward in what I'm developing, creating, what I'm learning, even my jobs, to never, ever revert back to something, to always go forward and improve my circumstances and always work in a position that I could learn from. Where's that drive come from? Oh, I think I'm a bit obsessive compulsive. Mm. But where does that come from? I think it comes, I was very sick as an adolescent. Right. And I had an obsession with food, which a lot of people did. I had an eating disorder, okay. which meant that I was obsessed with feeding other people and satisfying and pleasing people with food. So when did that eating disorder kind of rear its... Actually, it was head? the first two weeks of high school. I went to high school and then I actually got glandular fever. And from there, I just didn't go back to school. Right. I went back periodically. But glandular fever knocks you down, doesn't it? I don't know how it uh, affects kids now, but you'd be six plus weeks off school easy, wouldn't you? Yeah, it was a long time. And always as a child, if I was sick, I wouldn't eat. So I think that started and being a teenager, I didn't eat for that period and lost a dramatic amount of weight, as you imagine someone that young with yep. a probably fast metabolism. Um, and then I don't know why, but I just felt that I couldn't start eating again. So my mum would make me a milkshake every day, which she's now told me she used to, behind my back, get people to distract me and she'd be cracking eggs and vitamin pills and everything in there because I refused to have anything but one milkshake a day. Right. And then in winter, I refused to have that. I would only have one mug of hot chocolate a day. Wow. So, so that your family were worried about you? Oh yeah, I was seeing a psychologist. I yeah. mean, it was yeah. I was, I was hospitalised so, for a very long time. Wow. And it, and what are the ramifications now? Are they? they just, I think they're still around, or that I think that you always have that mentality of satisfying your own appetite a lot of the time, and that's what they do. Is people with eating disorders is they satisfy their appetite by feeding other people. Yeah. And I did that very intensely when I was at home. I would, because I didn't go to school, 
um, I would be cooking like a maniac. (laughs) So main meals, cakes. I started cake decorating at the age of 12. My mum would go along to the classes. I started selling cakes and things like that at the age of 12. But I think it's that comes from you know, watching people eat and people saying, wow, that's incredible, that's absolutely beautiful. Yeah. Your mum obviously encouraged you. Oh, they were very supportive. Well, will you look at what they drove me to work and Yeah, pick but me before up. that, I mean, if you were baking cakes and doing all, all this kind of thing, selling cakes and doing things like yeah, that Yeah, no, were my parents were very, very supportive of any of those aspects. I think that when you've got a child that that's ill, you'll do anything. To, anything. So why didn't you go back to school? I think that you take a lot of medication when you're in that situation and a lot that medication has side effects, but also I think I just blatantly refused. Yeah. So how do the authority, because the authorities surely would be involved at some level, wouldn't they, saying, okay, so what do you do? Uh, you know, you, you've got to progress and start work at 15. How did that all kind of come into No, the play? authorities don't do anything. Nothing? No. Well, my parents being both school teachers, I was registered at a homeschool facility, but they don't monitor anything because I guess there's certain people with illnesses that are just physically not able to study. But I think sometimes has that been detrimental? You know, sometimes I look at my son's maths homework and I think, oh, wow. Hey, I finished school. I look at my daughter's maths. I can't do it either. Don't worry about that. I think I've got no idea what they're talking about. I'm so sorry. So so I hate to be kind of burrowing down onto a little thing here because it seems so small. But what what was that moment then, either between your mum, your dad, you or you making that first move to to get that job at 15? Because that's a big of a jump, isn't it? Well, I'd been hospitalised for some time, so I went to a a private hospital um, that had really, really strict guidelines, which it was a psychiatric hospital, which I was one of the few children in there, if you like, and I found that really challenging because if you didn't put on weight, you had no visitors. If you didn't put on weight, you weren't allowed to get out of bed, you had no TV. So it was a reward program. So I think that was fundamental to me recovering, if you like. So I was there for a very, very long time. I think when I went in, I'm the same height as I am now, but I was about 25, 26 kilos. Wow. That's like a skeleton. Yes. A very, very thin. Um, So I think once I recovered, but I still loved cooking and I've carried that yeah. Carried that right through. And how much of that is from that illness? I don't know. Yeah. So jumping forward then, because now now my, I'm blown away by that, <laughs> because now, I mean, people know you from doing MasterChef. Yes. I mean, the general population do. The professional, obviously, community know you very well as being at the forefront of pastry and pastry design, your cooking school, which is Saver. I mean, you're an incredible businesswoman. How, how many people have you got employed now? Uh, 22. 22 staff. Yeah. And describe how this business works. So I, it's actually a really diverse business. There's probably two sides to the business. So there's me personally mm. who consults and does cookbooks and does demonstrations and we've just launched a phone app, a recipe book app called yep. Mix and Make. And then we've got the school, which is an education platform, which does hands-on classes. We do online videos 
which is to video subscribers. And then we have a retail division that sells ingredients and equipment, which we do online sales. So yeah, it's grown, but it's been going for 15 years. So it hasn't been a you it's know. sort of fly by night, and I'm, I'm not trying to make it sound like that, but I'm just connecting from this, f- connecting the dots between this 15 year old kid that you've just described yes. to to now, um, you know, successful, well known businesswoman who's got a, a very unique business. How many followers do you have on social media? Oh, if you put it all together, probably 500,000, with actually the biggest being USA. And you bring out top chefs from all over the world. Give us a chuck a couple of names at us, because these are massive. Uh, yeah, we do. We bring out chefs too. We run a competition as well. That's another business in itself, which is called Savor Patissier of the Year. Yeah. So Australian-based? Australian-based, and which is the richest prize money in any patisserie competition in the world. So we bring out people like Geordie Rocker, Christoph Michelak, Johan Martin, Antonio Bashur. Uh, you know, it's endless, the amount of Christoph Adam from Eclair de Genie, um, Paco Torreblanco. So what's, what is Saver? Is it, a cookery, is it a cookery school? Did it start as a cookery school? No. Tell us what it's it, a, well, it's a chocolate and patisserie school, so it's a, a platform that enables people to come in and do short courses and experience how to make all those products hands-on themselves. And when you came up with that idea, is that what it was? Is that the title you wrote? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly that. So it's evolved and expanded and moved left and right and up and down, but that is still the core of the business. Yeah. So having been the core of the business and the one person that drove it all, when did you start realising that this could grow? Because it's been very organic. I mean, 15 years is a long time, isn't it? 15 years is a long time, but I don't look at business that way. I don't look at business and think I need to generate more profit, more income. I look at, I guess, how do I evolve personally and professionally as a chef? And I think because I did that and looked at things that would improve my skills and enable me to learn, it therefore had a flow-on effect to those students who came in. So I continued learning and passing that knowledge on and then started bringing guest chefs, which for me was amazing for me to, because we had some guest chefs like we had a a chef who is one of my all-time favourites, Stefan LaRue. He's not really well-known. He's got a couple of books, but he's a he's an artist more so than a pastry chef. But he's so much of a control freak that he would actually come in at 2am to finish all the products before the students came. <laughs> and then we'd remake them with the students, but we'd use his for photography. He didn't want anyone to photograph the students' finished products in case they weren't perfect. So it would just be him and me. And experiences like that were amazing for my growth as a professional as well. Yeah. What what was the tipping point, do you think? Or has it just been, you know, punching away and... We've reached capacity in the classroom. We've only got one classroom and I've never wanted to change that and have five classrooms or Hmm. take more than 12 students. So... In my mind, I thought, how do I expand the business and cater to all these people who want to learn from us? And there's some people, A, who don't have the income to be able to attend a hands-on class. And another thing is distance. You might be in another country, you might be interstate, or you've just had a baby. So how do I actually train and teach those people? And then I thought, why don't we do video instruction? 
So that's when we launched the online classes, which is going really well. We've got nearly 180 videos and we add a new one every week so people can subscribe weekly or monthly to that. So that, I think, was instrumental to the next step, if you like, and I stepped out completely of the hands-on classes, so I don't teach any hands-on classes, and I focus on promoting the business and travelling and demonstrating and writing cookbooks, but I do probably 90% of the online classes. Yeah, and do you love that? Yeah, Is that I exactly do. exactly what you want to be doing? I do love that, and I love getting really nitty-gritty and technical. Yeah. <laughs> going in and yeah, digging <laughs> down and explaining why, because I think a lot of people – Maybe not people at home because that's great to follow a recipe and have a fantastic outcome. But I think if you're a professional in this industry, you can't just follow a recipe. You need to know why. Mm. Why is the sugar doing that or why and how can I change it and make it better? This is A Plate to Call Home and I'm Gary Megan. After the break, find out a little bit more about Kirsten's process in the kitchen and an app that may help you become your very own master pastry chef in your kitchen at home. Stay with us. It's a very male-dominated or has been a very male-dominated industry for lots of reasons, certainly from the time that you started back in the early 90s. How have you navigated your way through as, uh, as a woman? It's never really. I've never thought about it. The, even when I went to trade school here, we had dresses, not pants and tops, so we had a little nurse's <clears throat> uniform. <laughs> There's so many ways we could go with that, isn't there? (laughs) But being young, I didn't think anything of it because that's what you wore then. So it wasn't anything different and it it didn't bother me. Um, But there weren't any girls really. But then I actually went and did a stage in Belgium and in France. And I remember I went to Wittemere in Brussels, which was an all-male team and a lot of pastry chefs. And I was just beside myself with excitement. Mm. And I went to see the head chef and my first day, so eager. And he said, you can work with Christophe today because he likes to watch you bend over. Make sure you're bending over all the day. (laughs) And I was like, oh, (laughs) what do I say to that? I just said, no problem. Consider it done. Well, and how was Christoph? <laughs> Horrible? Or was he a- He was really shy and introverted. So, <laughs> so the chef was just taking the mickey yes. out of you, basically. <laughs> it wouldn't happen today. Thank goodness for that. Is that, is that all you remember about it? I, I mean, I, it- I, my first job, when I went to London, there was one girl out of 55 guys, and she was in the pastry. I think that there was, particularly in Europe, people couldn't understand that that you're a pastry chef. No, 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 no. You're a girl. Yeah. You know, that's not a girl's job. But it didn't ever worry me and I don't think it's ever changed or challenged me in any position. I think because your work speaks for itself regardless if you're male or female and I'm not a feminist. I think male are better at a lot of applications because of their strength Mm. Um, and I think females are probably – more dainty in some things and the hands are smaller for some applications. So I think there's a place for both. And I never felt it infringe on what I was doing or what I wanted to do in any way. Um, They made sexist comments, um, which I just laughed off. I didn't have any problem with it I think you've got to be built of of certain stuff to be able to put up with it, I I reckon. I mean, having, you know, started my training, you know, in the middle 80s, it's changed completely. And even, even if I think back 10 years there's been some significant changes in the workplace. Now, you know, at some stage, I think I've had almost all girls 
in senior positions, you know, like head chef, sous chef, you know, and really good at what they do. But they're built of a certain material. Yes. You know? And I think a certain personality where I don't take offence to what people say. I don't yeah. mind if it's in jest. I just laugh it off and I don't take anything personally. Yeah. But it's funny you say that because now I only employ, out of 22 staff, three males. Yeah. Which is not done on purpose. It's just the way it's worked it's out. It's an about face in the industry that I think's happened. I think a lot of it, in my opinion, is just because we've become more flexible. It's hard to get good staff, you know. So when you know our team, you know, if the girls go away on maternity leave, then you want to see them back in whatever capacity they can come back. I into think the that's team. one of the things that's quite challenging and difficult for a female is if you do choose to have a family and more than one child. Yeah, the hours not particularly for what I'm doing, but for hospitality in generally, are not really catered towards yeah. mums who've got kids in school. Uh, it's a really big juggle. So I think there's a large majority of women as they get older who leave the industry and they may come back to it. Yeah. But I think the fact that I've continued the right way through. Because you're a mum. I'm a mum, yeah. yeah. And, and so how's that been? I Is that you- why you've not gone into production? Because you don't have a production arm, as in you don't you don't have a shop. People can't no. go and buy your shop. The reason that's example. a conscious decision, I haven't gone into production because I think I would be competing with my students. Right. So a lot of my students are from around Australia, and I want to encourage them and support them and help them in whatever business or endeavours they want to do, yeah. rather than actually be in the marketplace competing for their business. Do you think you'll ever be in the marketplace? Because, I mean, we, you, every time you come mm. to set, for example, and we, ha- we taste your chocolates, <laughs> they, they are not, you know, not blowing smoke, but they are the best chocolates in Australia. Thank you. I, I think eventually I will do something. I've got a whole concept in my head of what I will do, but I think it will be a casual approach, but beautiful food. Um, casual approach, and it will be something very, very small. It won't be wholesale. It'll be very boutique. Once you're sold out, it's done. It's done. Yeah. Um, but I think I've got too much to achieve in the next couple of years, and then I would look at it beyond that. Yeah. It's interesting. It's going to be. It's like watch this space, everyone, because <laughs> yeah. if you ever get a chance to eat some of Kirsten's chocolates, they are insanely good. You, you know that, don't you? you? When you the I pleasure do, you must get from I do watching people. A bit of my own work. I must do you? It's, <laughs> but the pleasure you must get from giving those to people. Because it is, it's a, you watch people's faces and they just, they light up. It's like, wow, because it, it's a textural things, flavour thing. It is. I love, um, you know, it comes all back to that pleasing yeah. people with food. Freedom. But I do, I love that aspect of it. Cause, and also there's not many people where you give someone a box of chocolates and they say, oh, thanks. No. <laughs> <Not> really, <laughs> you know. Well, it's, uh, I was going to say first, there's a couple of questions I was going to ask. One was about ideas and we'll come back to that because I was just thinking that that very point is that why is pastry on social media so big now why is that why are we so fascinated by it when you look at the complete and opposite health message that is being drummed into us you know sugar's bad you know it's like the white death and everybody's so health conscious you know carbs are terrible thing to (laughs) eat you know we're all scared of them and yet Pastry, desserts, you know, those conceptual kind of desserts. People are fascinated by it. You go anywhere on social media and it's probably the most followed, most photographed. It is, I think, because it's appealing for people to look at. It's an indulgence, but it's also a piece of art. 
So you can make something in chocolate that replicates something in life. So something realistic that looks exactly the same. I could, you know, make a pair of headphones. I could make anything out of chocolate and I could make it into it. Well, you can't do that with a savoury food or with carrot sticks or... You can't. I think those the health messages and things that I do... I run parallel. I don't think they cross over because a lot of what I do is inspire people, but a lot of what I do isn't practical to put into production. So not many people get to experience it or get to actually eat it because it may take me 14 days to produce something. So it's... So there's a bit of voyeuristic kind of interest that people are watching and dreaming that they will. And liking, is that what you're saying? You I know? think and that people that find it hard to lucky. comprehend that some of the things we create are actually edible because we often make things that defy gravity or don't look like food, um, and but they're pretty and beautiful. So I yeah. think that's the appeal of it as well. So where do the ideas come from? Where does the creative genius come from? Um, actually, I was just in New Zealand and they have beautiful botanic gardens there. I love the botanic gardens there and I spend all my free time there. But I look at things like, like I was looking at the ferns and thinking, you know, the ferns are absolutely stunning and that would be really good. And then I just look at the texture of the fern, the colour, the fern frongs when they're curled up and that curve, the movement, all of that. And then I think about applying that. I've actually been asked to, um... They ask me nearly every issue, but I'm so busy sometimes, but I'm going to do it again this time, is uh, there's a publication in Spain that's probably the biggest magazine globally in the world for pastry chefs, and they ask me frequently to submit stuff. So I'll go tell you the process of what I'll do. So they leave it up to me what I'll actually do. Um, but I work from the outside in. I don't even look at flavours because magazine publications and a lot of what I do is visual. So I design that part of it first before I then decide what flavours, textures, fillings I'm going to put in. So I actually draw it with coloured pencils, um, old old style, (laughs) and I try to avoid using too many moulds. So you're creating a unique shape or a unique concept that people haven't seen before because I think moulds have saturated the market and they're absolutely brilliant for getting a modern finish. But how do you make something that's going to stand out and not look like everybody else's? You either make your own mould or you create something that doesn't require a mould. So I look at doing that and I think texture is important and a combination of matte and shine because if things are all shiny, I think it's hard to focus and if things are all matte, it can look a bit dull. So a balance of those two. And then I start looking at texture first and flavour is last. And I'm not saying it's not important. It is. But for what I do, people eat with their eyes and most people won't ever taste it. If people, it doesn't, yeah, that's right. People might try to replicate the recipe and I hope that they do. But um, some of those cakes even take me eight hours to produce one. <laughs> It's an expensive cake, isn't it? Yeah. So, so we're expecting to see like a bit. It's it's so much like an artist, isn't it? So, is it? We're expecting to see like a botanical art series coming out of Kirsten's. I am going towards brain. that way. I was really inspired by some of the plant life, a lot of the moss, the rocks, yeah, uh, that sort of thing. How you get that texture, um, you know, water droplets, things like that, yeah. and then you know, I think of that, but the end product may look nothing like that. Because sometimes I test it and I think, oh, 
you know what would be amazing is if I did this, this and this, and then it mm. evolves from what I started with to something completely Takes it in a different. different direction. I love how your brain works. And actually, the, the longer I've known you, I think, and all of us probably feel the same way that know you, is the fact that the point is you're, you're constantly learning, constantly developing. And many of us, most of us, kind of stop at one stage or another. I'm always learning, but certainly in terms of my skills, I'm not taking those to the next level you know, every week of the year, which which you are, which is incredible. And that's a really wonderful space that you've put yourself into deliberately. Yeah, thank you. I I have a, a mission statement, if you like, for myself that mm. as soon as I stop learning, I'm going to retire. Yeah. So if I sort of think, you know what, yeah. I'd, I've, there's nothing that I want to learn or know, I think it's time to step down. But there's learning and doing. See, I, I operate these days on a kind of a, a look and see and taste, you know, yeah, rather than experience. actually, yeah, an experientials kind of side. And I, I really do miss that. You know, when I make stuff, I go, oh, that's right, I can make that. It's interesting you say that because a couple of years <clears> ago, I was actually asked to go to Barcelona to demonstrate to 300 of the world's top pastry chefs, chocolatiers and a mm. few chefs, um, which was very daunting. There was only six of us selected to demonstrate and they gave us an emerging trend within society to each of us and we had to express our food <laughs> through that trend. Um, so one of them was raw food, which I'm glad I didn't get that one. <laughs> I actually got the theme, which was Star Rebellion, which if you look that up, it means really bright, offensive colours. So you might have, if it was in clothing, for example, you might have leopard print pants on and then a striped, a different pattern top. So people were like, whoa. Yeah. So they wanted it really bright. So I actually developed a new technique that had never been seen in the world before because I drew pictures, I tested and tested and tested and I developed a lollipop, yeah. which um, we dip in coloured chocolate and then hold it upside down so it creates a point which gives a beautiful shape and movement. And I launched that at this demonstration in Barcelona. So I think, you know, when you're up against that and you think, oh, these are all my idols and people yeah. that I've admired for years, I need to pull something amazing out here. And going across, I went across there with 200 kilos of luggage. <laughs> yeah. Because I did a whole display of that theme. So I think I did about 23 different products, but just demonstrated that one. So they could fully submerge themselves and put themselves in that mind space of Star Rebellion so that what I demonstrated actually linked and fit in. So it wasn't just mm. isolated. Do you remember on one of own. those guys coming up to you and complimenting you on what you'd done? I knew because there had already been, out of the six of us, there would already been a few demonstrations and I knew as soon as I started and of the 300 people, the front row all merged forward with their phones and everyone followed afterwards and they had to say, you know, can you sit back down so everyone can see that I, I, would feel, that I think that's a good sign. Kirsten, that's amazing. Have you ever tried to connect that difficult past with the incredible success that you have now? Not really. And I think the reason that I, I don't mean from a career, I don't mean from a creative point of view, but you know, there are so many people with eating disorders or difficulties growing up and you've, you're obviously very, you're a very inspirational woman. I don't think that I don't, I maybe subconsciously I connect the two, but, and that's certainly 
pushed me into cooking mm. and I guess not going to school enabled me to practice and work all day, every day on food, which most people would be studying mathematics and English. So I am submerged myself really, really intensely into food. And even when I was in hospital and, you know, mm. receiving therapy for the eating disorder, they limited the amount you could cook. So we were, I was only allowed to cook. They had occupational therapy, they called it, but I was only allowed to cook once a week. But if I, if I had my way, even then I would have been down in the kitchen every single day. Um, what, what broke the cycle then? Do you remember? Was it, I do know what broke the cycle. Yeah. After I hopped out of hospital, that you meant to go twice a week to aftercare and get weighed. And I think after I hopped out of, came out of hospital, I think I weighed about 40 kilograms, so which they said is quite good. You're still underweight, but I think they think if you've got an eating disorder, you still feel comfortable if someone says to you, you're underweight, mm. but you're good to go. <laughs> um, but I think it was that weighing myself and initially I'd lost weight um, and then focusing and analysing and I went home and I said, I don't want to go to those sessions anymore. So I just called Turkey, stopped seeing a psychologist, stopped going into the hospital for the aftercare visits. And I I honestly think if I had kept going in there and had been constantly reminded of, oh, you've put on 500 grams, that's great, that would have played on my mind. Like, what did I eat this week? Oh, my God, maybe I didn't exercise enough. You know, I've put on 500 grams. I can't believe it. You know, going cold turkey and cutting that out and having no scales at home and... I think that's what made me sort of come out the other side and then starting a job. Yeah, kind of dignitative labour, something to focus on, something you love. Yeah, I think maybe it works for a lot of people, but for me not, you know, stepping away from that world and that part of my life and that time in my life I think is what was the first step towards recovery. Yeah. What's the future? <laughs> Do you know what it is? Have you got any idea? I, I've, I've actually... I, you know the app. We have yes. to just quickly talk about the app because that's amazing, isn't it? The We've- app is launched very yeah. recently and I'm really for analytics. I probably check them way too much. Yeah. But at the moment, yeah, it's going extremely well. How but do people find it? What's the name? It's called Mix and Make with Kirsten Tibble. So it's an interactive recipe book. So I've actually developed, which took me a year and a half, about just under 2,000 recipes So what you can do is you can have a coffee macaron shell and a vanilla macaron shell and you can change it to a vanilla filling, a caramel filling, a chocolate filling and whatever you pick by clicking the screen, it will give you the recipe. If you change it, it'll change the recipe for you. And so it's eclairs, tarts and macarons So it's a click and combine where you can create your own macaron or your own tart using a, a kind of... Um, an index of different recipes. It's, it's actually real photos. I think that's the time-consuming part of it all is I photographed every product in every flavour. <laughs> so <laughs> for each macaron, it's over a 1,000 macarons that I photographed yeah. with every combination. So you could have a red shell, a yellow shell, a blue shell, a black shell and pick whatever filling you want and it'll give you an instant recipe. Changes the game, doesn't it? I, I- think this is a direction. I Maybe... I'm not sure. No, it changes the game. And, and actually, this year on MasterChef was the first year. It was Michelle, the young lady, 19 years old. Where did you learn how to do this? And she said, off YouTube. Yes. First time ever. Never had that answer before. So it shows you that people are learning, young people are learning completely differently. 
Yeah, I'm a different generation, but I can see and my audience, surprisingly, is actually 18 to 36 is my major audience. And I think that's for social media, online classes and now for the app. And I think that's, they're more technology savvy than someone like me, who I love that. And I've got certain applications I love, but I'm more likely to go to a printed recipe book. Yeah. But they think about food differently too. So they're looking for different things. And I think they're looking for something faster, an instant gratification where this is exactly the apps, exactly that gives you that. You can pick and change. Okay, I don't want the coffee one. I want the chocolate one. I want this one. I'm going to do that. I'm going to print this recipe. You could make your own recipe book and send it to your mum for Mother's Day. What's the app called and where can you get it? It's called Mix and Make with Kirsten Tibbles, and it's available on both Apple and Android. Cool. I'm going to be downloading that one. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much for coming in. It's been a lovely chat, and I know so much more about you now. Really? I never knew. Be careful. <laughs> be careful. I might use those secrets. No, I would never. I'd never do that. And I can safely say that I think you know you set this year's uh, finale dessert for the contestants. I think it was almost cruel, but incredible. (laughs) And none of us had seen anything like it. So, you know, so as a testament to your creativity and uh, your professionalism, I do admire you immensely because I I love the idea that you're continuously learning, um, in a very practical sense, like improving your skills. It's a bit, my mum's a calligraphist and she, uh, she's done, she did a degree in botanical art um, at 72 just because she hadn't done it and she was so devastated because she only got two distinctions and a credit rather than three <laughs> distinctions I so love there's, that. as you're talking there's a bit of uh, my mum you yeah. know the, the, it reminds me of my mum because she's such a perfectionist in what she does so you be careful because at 72 imagine what you'll be <laughs> your, your husband will just be trying to slow down and you know that three year plan won't involve you doing something <laughs> crazy like that so best of luck Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Time for my tips and tricks. People are often scared about pastry. Even professional chefs kind of leave it alone because they haven't had enough experience in it. But believe it or not, when you get used to making odd recipes and the techniques start making sense, then it's not too hard at all. My trick is always not to be too fancy. And especially when you're doing a dinner party, do something that you know is going to be super popular and extra yummy. Chocolate mousse is always a winner. And I've got a really simple recipe. But in fact, I kind of stole this one from George a few years ago, but don't tell him because I changed one ingredient. That makes it mine. So essentially, what you do is melt a really good bit of chocolate and whip double the quantity of that chocolate. So if you've got 100 grams of chocolate, whip 200 mils of whipping cream. Till you get soft peaks, pop that in the fridge. Melt the chocolate. Stir in a little hazelnut oil, just about a tablespoon or two, just so you get the flavour. You can have a little taste, which is your treat halfway through. And then fold in half of that whipped cream. And then when it's just about incorporated, fold in the other half. Now, you need to be careful. You need to make sure that you fold in all the cream because otherwise you get white streaks. But then if that doesn't bother you, you can kind of call it a stripy chocolate mousse. And can I tell you, it's absolutely delicious. A couple of spoons on the couch. That is a dessert for two on a Friday night. Or it gets fancy if you want to do it for a dessert for a dinner party. Enjoy. A Plate to Call Home is a Podcast One production produced by Dave Zwolenski, executive producer Jamie Shue, audio production is Darcy Thompson and special thanks to Imogen Thomas for all the research. 